I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Welcome back to Go and Do. This week we're joined by Ellie Arnold to talk about Alma chapters 30 and 31, where we read about Korahor, the Antichrist, and his interactions with Alma, as well as Alma and the sons of Mosiah and a few other of their brethren traveling to meet the Zoramites, who have a particularly unusual way of worshiping. We hope you enjoy it. So basic, well, just a brief summary. Um, in chapter 30, we meet Korahor, who is uh, called an antichrist. And it's interesting because in the manual, um, it says an antichrist is one who would assume the guise of Christ, but in reality would be opposed to Christ. So it's almost like someone discrediting Christ and yet at the same time trying to take his role or his position as a guide or leader or example right so it's not someone who's saying none of that is true but it's instead of saying that person is not who he says he is it's me i thought about if you were trying to lead for your own glory and using the gospel principles to twist them so you can gain power and you can gain influence it's also interesting how it says um that Sister Julie Beck, uh, the previous Relief Society president, it quotes her in, in saying, any doctrine or principle we hear from the world that is anti-family is also anti-Christ. And I thought that was very direct. Where my, where my mind went is recently President Elder Bednar's talk on, on religious freedom that he did at the religious conference and how... Uh, he tied it to the parable of the prodigal son and how you you are wasting your inheritance or doing what you like and what feels great and then you end up in a place where you don't want to be and you figure and you wonder how did I get to this and I thought about that same analogy for the family is sometimes especially in our society there aren't there aren't very many things that inherently say, I want to attack the family, I want to hurt the family, I want to minimize its influence, or for that religious things, what the, what we tend to mostly do is place them in a secondary priority, or not mention them, or not acknowledge it. 
and by doing that we are you know it's 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 a subtle way that i think that satan attacks um and you'll see that how Korihor, when he begins to argue with the helma he kind of uses those same tactics you know it's interesting that in in chapter 30 verse 7 because it's talking about how Korihor is an antichrist. He began to preach the people against the prophecies which had been spoken by the prophets. Then verse 7 goes, Now there was no law against a man's belief, for it was strictly contrary to the commands of God that there should be a law which should bring men on to unequal grounds. For thus saith the scripture, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. Now if a man desired to serve God, it was his privilege, or rather if he believed in God, it was his privilege to serve him. But if he did not believe in him, there was no law to punish him. So what Korahor is doing is not against the law, right? Going and teaching this stuff, there was no law to say you can't think that, you can't believe that, you can't teach it. Um, but at the same time, he's in multiple places, he's bound and removed, right? <clears throat> Yeah. That's something up that and, I find very interesting. That it's yeah. like it's legal technically, but like they're still treating it as if it's not. Well, and I wonder why. They, they did mention <laughs> that it was illegal for them to uh, commit adultery. Uh, to do there, there's a list somewhere where uh, it's in verse ten, yeah. But if he murdered, he was punished unto death, and if he robbed, he was also punished, and if he stole, he was also punished. And if he committed adultery, he was also punished. Yea, for all of this wickedness, they were punished. For there was a law that men should be judged according to their crimes. Nevertheless, there was no law against a man's belief. Therefore, a man was punished only for the crimes which he had done. Therefore, all men were on equal grounds. Yeah, and so he, Korihor, he starts gaining this, this following. And then he goes to the people in the land of Jershom, which are the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And they basically say, uh, no, they grab him. I think they tied him up like a pig on one of those sticks. <laughs> and they says like they carried them out of town. So it was basically them as a community say, we don't want this here, no soliciting or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then they took him to, um, to the high priest of that area. Is Ammon, yeah. But it's, it's really interesting because you know they they are totally respecting your right to believe whatever you want it is but then there is a there's a line between live and let live you know it doesn't hurt me people can do whatever they want to believe and in the privacy of their home or whatever right you know that's a very popular belief nowadays and it's a good belief i think that freedom is is needed but then there's also a line where you need to step in and you need to counter this uh, this influence. And I think it's when, I think after Korihor is, uh, is smitten or he is uh, made mute or, or dumb or he can't speak, that uh, he then acknowledges through the writing, hey, you know, I was wrong, I agree. And Alma says, yeah, but you will go back, if we lift this curse, you will go back and lead people away again. 
And then he says something uh, along the lines of, uh, but he said, lead the hearts in 56, uh, 55. If this curse shall be taken from thee, you would again lead the hearts of the people away. So it was more, he can, he can condemn his own soul. He can do whatever he wants. But when he's leading other people away, I think that's when Alma's responsibility is, no, we cannot allow this to happen. No. I think so. Yeah, because in, um, oh, where is it? In verse 1718-ish, uh, when Korhor is telling people, um, like preaching that, he's basically starting to preach to them that like they can do whatever crimes that they want. And I think that maybe that's the line that they're drawing. Like as soon as you start telling people to do crimes, these things that are illegal and they start doing them because you told them to, then that's where we say you can't, you can't do this. Like as soon as your, your beliefs and your, your preaching actively starts to harm other people, that's where we draw the line. Right. And legally they're saying you can believe whatever you want and you might even be able to teach whatever you want as far as beliefs and, in philosophy, right? If you don't believe in God and you want to teach others that there is no God, you have that right. But when he starts to kind of instigate more than just that, he starts to discredit the existing system and saying, like like you were saying, I think it's in uh, the end of 17, whatsoever a man did was no crime. Okay, yeah. well, come on now. We do have laws, you know, <laughs> You're just basically running over that. And then when he starts talking to the high priest and he starts kind of explaining himself and he's saying, I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers. And because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under foolish ordinances and performances, which are laid down by ancient priests to usurp power and authority over them, to keep them in ignorance that they may not lift up their heads, but be brought down according to thy words. He's basically saying, it's no longer just, hey, this is just what I think. This is just what I believe. But it's now trying to discredit the the government and the authority of the church. And I think that's when people are kind of like, uh, this is progressing beyond just personal beliefs and personal preferences. And it's getting into uh, wanting to dis- be destructive, right? Well, he, he begins, you know, his main message to start gathering his followers was to attack these foolish traditions. How do you know these things? How, you know, in 13, he calls it foolish and vain hope. Why do you yoke yourselves to such? So it's almost like, why do you follow these rules or these laws based on these tradition or what your grandpa said or what his grandpa said? And then why do you look for a Christ? For no man can know anything which is to come, you know? And then he kind of talks about those things. And then in, in, um, in verse 31, so in verse 29, when they saw, you know, it begins with when the chief judge saw the hardness of his heart and they saw that he would just openly revile against God, they, they would not make any reply to his words. And then in 31, they, 30, they take him to Alma and they say, you know, we need the stake president for this, you know. Or, or whatever, right? And 31, and it's interesting in how he begins and how he describes it. And he says, and he did rise up, gr- rise up in great swelling words before Alma. 
And I'm curious, like, what that would look like, you know, you know just like this great orator, this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they'd revile against the priests and the teachers, accusing them of leading the people away. So this is, you know, if here's the thing I find fascinating is he's using principles that are good, but in a bad way, you know. And so if people are being led away by someone and deceived, that's a bad thing. And it appears as if he's doing the right. He's he's being a hero. He's being the protector. He, he's coming out. But when those prince, when when you're not doing it for the right reasons and when you're doing it against God's principles, then it's a terrible thing. And I see that very much in our day. People that they argue or they go to these extremes on these principles that the principle alone by itself is a wholesome good thing, but they use it to, you know, knife their neighbor in the side, you know, with it, you know, or to tear people down. Yeah, I get the feeling reading a lot of his like arguments and reading the section about how the high priest and the chief judge um, saw what he's saying and they would just would they wouldn't even answer him. Um, I get the feeling that he's a lot of the arguments he's making are they're basically in bad faith. He doesn't necessarily believe what he even necessarily believe what he's saying. He doesn't believe what anybody's saying. He'll just say whatever he needs to say to get what he wants, which is to be able to do whatever he wants without consequence. And so when he's giving when he's arguing with them and saying, oh, you're just trying to control everybody and all this stuff like he's not actually interested in having a, a good faith discussion or argument with them. He's trying to lure them into a fight that's not going to be productive for anybody. And they recognize that and they say, we're not going to be lured into this trap. So we're not even going to, because we know you don't actually, you aren't actually interested in this. And then, so when he has his sign that he, when he goes, he's made mute and he gives this explanation of like, oh, I was deceived by the devil. But like his whole explanation makes no sense. It's totally <laughs> contradictory. And so he, cause he's like, oh, I knew that there was a God. And then an angel came to me and he told me there wasn't a God. But like, if you saw an angel, that's kind of proof that there is a God. And I started to believe what I was preaching. And like, it's pretty, it seems pretty clear, at least to me that like, he's just saying whatever he has to say to get out of this the same way that before he was saying whatever he had to say to get what he wanted yeah. and that's why like it's not productive in this case to actually have this discussion with him because it's not a real discussion and especially <clears throat> when he's basically made his entire existence around his ability to talk his way through things mm -hmm. suddenly he can't mm -hmm. and so he's trying to you know explain the situation just so that he can get that tool back because what else has he done? We, we've never heard of Korahor until now, you know? Mm -hmm. The other part is, the, is that second half of that definition of an antichrist. In a broader sense, it is anyone or anything that counterfeits the true gospel or plan of salvation and that openly or secretly is set up in opposition to Christ. Like Billy was saying and like you were saying also, this is someone who's taking some principles of truth and giving them a twist and just kind of counterfeiting it. I don't know. It's it's a way of of how the how Satan uses things that might appeal to people 
and then posing that as, well, wouldn't this be more right than what you think is right? I think it's really interesting for that reason to look at like what exactly he's trying to replace Christ with. Um, so if you look at his, his whole big speech between like 12 and 18, Oh, where is it? Where is it? Okay, 17. That's what I'm looking for. Yes. So every man fared in this life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius and every man conquered according to his strength. And so I think what he's doing is he's replacing Christ with the individual and with the self and saying like you as an individual and things that you want are more important than Christ. And what Christ tells you is that his people as a whole and as a group are important. And the things that you do affect other people versus the things that you do only matter for you. And that's what he, that's the counterfeit that he's presenting. The funny <clears throat> thing about that is that what Christ wants is to make the best version of you possible, mm-hmm. you know? So it kind of comes back to if you really do care about yourself, you would follow Christ. Because mm-hmm. his teachings in his way of living will help you be the best version that you can be you know mm-hmm. but see yeah, but say it takes that little bit and twists that out of there mm-hmm. into no he just wants to control you people want to just tell you what to do you know i i think that that is the difference between the gospel of jesus christ and the gospel of man is the gospel of jesus christ the the group <clears throat> The betterment of everyone and the individual are not separate things. The more you improve yourself, the better person you are. You inherently are better towards others. And if everyone else is doing the same thing, then the group gets better, right? Mm -hmm. And encouraging each other to be their best self individually benefits the bigger group. Whereas Mm -hmm. what he's proposing, take a look after yourself. Do what you need to do. Take care of yourself. Do what you want. You are more valuable than the bigger group because your experience is all that matters is actually the exact opposite and is detrimental to the group, right? Mm -hmm. Because then everybody's running around doing whatever they want and there's Mm -hmm. no crime and there's no consequence. And what you end up with is chaos, just Mm -hmm. no unity at all. We kind of have a pretty concrete example of that right now. (laughs) With the pandemic going on, where yeah. like what you do doesn't just affect you, it affects everyone. And like, you know, we need to be considerate of other people and thinking not just about, oh, what I need and what I want, but what what's best for all the people around me. Because the virus doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> With thinking about others, there is things that can impact someone, you know, especially right now during covid you know, if you don't follow safe guidelines, you could become part of the problem or, or not help the solution. And then there are people that are just scared. They're very scared. And instead of getting up and saying, why are you so scared? You're, you're dumb, you know. Uh, being a good friend and good neighbor will say, you know, you're, if you're more scared than I am, and I'm not as cautious as you are, but I'll be more cautious around you because I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Like, is that so hard? You know, <laughs> it, it, just to like, to just, even if, you know, just for 
to treat someone else, you know, like there's different levels, you know, in, in it's almost like, um, like just having a good, um, good manners, mm -hmm. just good manners. You know, there are some people that uh, uh, don't like you to eat with your mouth open. And you may have been born eating with your mouth open and you love it, right? But if you know it makes someone else uncomfortable, how hard is it to just, hey, I'm going to be mindful of this, you know? Uh, but instead, even we try to... Even if you find it to be completely ridiculous and unnecessary and whatever, just being considerate of what another person might be thinking or feeling, I think that that's reasonable. See, what, what gets me is in a time like this, the majority of people are getting really riled up about very insignificant things while Satan is throwing his plan to subvert the gospel and subvert the family. And we let those ones slide by. Here's something I found interesting. I think um, <clears throat> verse 37, Alma just straight out, he asked him twice, but he says, uh, Alma then said unto him, Believe us out that there is a God. And 38, and he answered me. And then if we jump over to verse uh, 48, uh, and now Korher said unto him, I do not deny the existence of a God, but I do not believe that there is a God. And I say also that you do not know that there is a God, except you show me a sign. So he goes from being an atheist to being an agnostic. Uh, there <laughs> could be something. Uh, you know, and it's 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 very quickly. But in the middle of that, I really like what Alma says um, when Korihor in 43 asked him for a sign. And Alma said unto him, Thou has had signs enough. Will you tempt your God? Will ye say, show unto me a sign when ye have the testimony of all these brethren and all the holy prophets and the scriptures are laid before thee? Yea, and all these things denote that there is a God, even the earth and all the things upon the face of it, yea, in its motions, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. And I really like that because he's kind of saying, you cannot plead ignorance here. You have, if you want to know that there's God, You've, there's all these signs, there's all these testimonies, all these missionary work going around all the time. There's you got the prophets, you have the scriptures, and then you have just you observing the world on your own should come to the conclusion that there is order and there is a creator to everything. And I think that's a pretty good pattern for us to to remember for ourselves. Sometimes we um we may have a problem with a church announcement or a change or or something, right? Or something in church history. And we can ask ourselves, well, have you are you are you are you mingling with the saints? Are you reading the words of the prophets? Are you reading your scriptures? Are you pondering these things? Or are you just getting uh, replying or reading some YouTube video uh, that someone made? about Joseph Smith, right? You know? Well, the fact that he so easily goes from being an atheist to an agnostic and then just asking for a, a sign just goes to show that even he doesn't even have that that rigid of beliefs in even what he's saying. Like, he's so ready to just 
change just to be argumentative, just to be contrarian, that it he doesn't have any real foundation of what he's talking about. He's like just trying to egg them on, just trying to discredit them somehow, and really just trying to gain a following of whoever will be susceptible to that, right? Creating doubt, just stirring enough, up enough doubt, muddying the water just enough that people will be confused, right? And that's totally what Satan does. He doesn't necessarily care if you have a a strict belief system after he messes with you. He just wants to mess with you enough to create doubt, to make you confused, and to leave you wondering, I don't know anymore. There could be a God, I guess, or maybe not, or I just need a sign now. Just give me a sign now. And it's like, well, if you're reduced to that point, then you don't have faith at all, right? You relinquished your, your faith completely. I really like this section in the lesson where it says, The Book of Mormon can help me resist the influence of those who try to deceive me. And then it quotes President Estratef Benson, where it says, He taught that the Book of Mormon reveals and can fortify us against the evil designs, strategies, and doctrines of the devil in our day. The type of, um, of apostates in the Book of Mormon are similar to the types we have today. You know, God in his infinite foreknowledge so molded the Book of Mormon that we might see the error and know how to combat false education, political, religious, and philosophical concepts of our time. But, I mean, these same tactics we hear today. And, you know, in as easy for us to look at this chapter and to say, man, Korihor was just all over the place. He's just inconsistent. He's in we know he led many people away, yeah. and that could be us. We can fall for these traps. And I like verse 57, where it, uh, towards the end, uh, the proclamation was sent forth by the chief judge to all the people of the land, declaring unto those who had believed the words of Korihor that they must speedily repent, lest the same judgment would come upon them, which is, is pretty scary. And it came to pass that they were all convinced of the wickedness of Korihor. Therefore, they were all converted again unto the Lord. And this put an end to the iniquity after the manner of Korihor. And so after this time, they kind of, Korihor uh, becomes kind of um, uh, just a wanderer, begging for food. He still is mute. The, he ends up in this land uh, where the Soramites, this other kind of apostate group, live and they they killed them they trampled them or something right he was mm -hmm. down until he until he was dead and so then alma it's interesting because then alma notices hey these soramites they're not doing well and you would think as a leader oh he they, you know i i'd be tempted to be like oh the soramites are awesome they just took care of korihor for us you know no not at all what alma thinks is we need to go minister to these people. And he he reunites the band, and they all get ready again. And once they get there, it is, he, they, they say something like they, they were so astounded of what they found. Because at first they were surprised because they had, they had uh, synagogues and they had places of worship. And, and then at first it looked positive, and then they attended some of their meetings. And then it was like, what? 
And then Alma kind of goes into what a little What is moment. going on here? <laughs> Why do you have this thing that you stand up on? Like, this is nothing that we have taught you, you know? I, I often wonder how often... Obviously, no one has Ramiumptums in their church buildings, but... They do once, uh, once on a Sunday, <laughs> fast Sunday, you see some <laughs> pretty ramiumptering things happening up in there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, no, yeah, I, I wonder there. how many times authorities might go around uh, in their duties of kind of visiting different wards and stuff, and they, they kind of find stuff, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Obviously, it's not going to be this systemic kind of like total disregard for the way we do things um, that these people have done. But why is this story in the scriptures other than to highlight to us that sometimes we can be, we can see shadows of that in ourselves where we want to elevate not only ourselves above the group still, this is another way that they're, they're showing the individual being more important than the congregation, right? But not even taking worship seriously. Treating worship as if it's this, you know, I just have to go say prayer 47 and then then it's my turn is done. And it's like, how many times do we find ourselves repeating the same prayer or not taking prayer seriously? This chapter to me is about prayer more than anything else. That's what stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. It's about treating prayer with the dignity it deserves, treating prayer with the reverence it deserves, and treating it as... There's a huge difference between the prayers that they're giving and the prayer that Alma says on their behalf. Huge contrast. Mm-hmm. Now, where they're going up there and they're saying all these <clears throat> stock phrases that are essentially meaningless after they're just repeated. And then Alma going up and saying, you know, talking with his Heavenly Father in a way that's, it's, yeah, maybe a one sided conversation, but he's speaking to him as a man speaketh to another, right? Like respectfully, but also not in this fake way. I don't know. It just seems so plastic the way that they were doing mm-hmm. it. I mean, yeah, I am. Um, so the edition of the book of Mormon that I'm reading is the, the Maxwell Institute study edition. Um, and it basically, it separates everything into paragraph form instead of chapter and verse. Um, it has a lot of foot, like different footnotes from what's in the, standard edition of the Book of Mormon. And in this section, it separates out the prayer that they give at the top of the Ramiumptum into just like one big block of text. And there's not really that much to it other than like, this is what they're saying. And then on the next page, it separates out um, Alma's prayer into, and basically his prayer is essentially a poem. It has this really interesting poetic structure and it's like complex and thoughtful and it echoes itself in a few places. Like it, it, it's just so interesting to me that like the 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 Zoramites prayer is like very rote and there's not a lot to it. They're just saying like, thanks that we're the best and <laughs> you like us more than other people. And then Alma's prayer is like actually thought through and considered and like he's putting effort into it and um like actual his actual concerns for his current situation and for the people around him which is 
like obviously a much a much better prayer and it has actual effect in then like after it's done in the verse 36 like he it says that after Alma had said these words he clapped his hands upon all of them who were with him and behold as he clapped his hand clapped his hands upon them that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and so it has an actual like noticeable effect and yeah I a few months ago I was reading some some blog post or something was basically talking about how like prayer is giving all of your attention at one moment to God. Um, and I really liked thinking about it that way where you're directing all of your attention. You are not as, not like sacrificing, but that's kind of the, the direction I'm, I'm thinking of it. Like you are sacrificing your attention in that moment and giving everything of yourself to God to talk to him. Um, and I, I can see that difference here between like this really rote prayer that the Zoramites offer and Alma giving every bit of his attention and every bit of his himself into his prayer. And I try <laughs> wondering like, how often do I just say like that, those rote prayers and how often do I like actually devote all of my attention to God and then really think through what I'm saying and, and what I need and what I need to do. Um, I think that's a really important distinction that, that that's made in this chapter. So, you know, I <clears throat> I really like that distinction because Alma's prayer is it. I like I don't know. It really touched me because it you get this feeling of here we go again. Like, give me strength. You know, and he just got done dealing with this antichrist. You know. And it probably wasn't an overnight solution. We think one chapter to, and then before that, he was out there, you know, just his whole life has been, what I like to think of is Alma is a righteous person. And he can say in 31, my heart is exceedingly sorrowful. Will thou comfort my soul? What is that? sadness uh, depression hurtful like it doesn't exempt you from feeling pain you know being righteous being on the Lord's errand you're gonna feel those things and I think sometimes we get I mean they they knew they that they had to go to these people but they didn't know how bad it was you know and once they saw how bad it was it's like oh my goodness I don't know if I have the strength to do this, but you can see his faith. And then at the end, I, I really like in 36, like you mentioned that he, he kind of gave them a blessing and they were filled with the spirit. And then 37 right away. And after that, they did separate themselves one from another. I, I just think what a, you know, even though they're separate, they're going with the Lord. Each one of them. The Lord is with each one of them. I would think that would be very difficult. You know, if I were presented in a similar situation and maybe the three of us were going to go, hey, we're going to Canada. We got to go fix those Canadians, you know. <laughs> I would say, let's stick together. It'll be easier. But if we said, like, like the faith they have to have to just, and, the, and then it says, taking no thought of themselves, what they should eat and what they should drink what they should put on and the lord provided for them that they should hunger not neither should they thirst 
Yea, and also gave them strength that they should not suffer, that they should suffer no matter of affliction. Save it, it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Now this was according to the prayer of Alma, and this because he prayed in faith. And that's astounding. I mean, we, we think having faith means like Nephi, like we never waver, you know, like like we can't be imperfect. You can't have a negative thought. You can't feel it. But Alma doesn't show that. He shows he's so sorrowful. He's like, oh, my goodness. And, and even 30 where he says, oh, Lord God, how long will thou suffer that such wickedness and infidelity shall be among this people? O oh Lord, would thou give me strength that I may bear with mine infirmities, for I am infirm, and such weak, and such wickedness among this people doth pain my soul. You know, like how would we translate that to today? I am very disappointed. I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe. I thought we were just gonna have to help. We have to rebuild everything from the beginning. We have to start over, you know. That Those feelings doesn't mean that he didn't end with faith. I think we, we tend to be so hard on ourselves and think that having faith means I never doubt, I never... No, it, it just means you're going to work through it in your prayer, I think, gets you there. You, you speak with the Lord and he fills you with the Spirit and you gradually improve I think it's interesting in verse 7 who he decides to take with him because he takes the sons of Mosiah and he also take well in verse 6 he also takes Amulek and Zizram in verse 7 he says now the eldest of his sons he took not with him and his name was Helaman but the names of those whom he took with him were Shiblon and Corianton we learn later that Corianton was not maybe your typical Peter priesthood, you know? He was not a good example. <laughs> he was not the greatest. Uh, yeah. He wasn't super faithful or valiant in his testimony even. And I think it's interesting that he would leave Helaman. Obviously, he trusted him. I'm going to leave you here. Run things while I'm gone. You're the oldest. You're also probably the most trustworthy right now. And their experiences that he was going to have while they were gone, that he was going to need to call on later. He becomes prophet, and when he's the new leader, right? But he takes these two sons, and I think there's enough guys <laughs> going that maybe it wasn't necessary for the sons to go. But I think he's like, look, these two might not be doing so well spiritually. Shiblon did, did was okay, but. Uh, I think it was a, an opportunity for them to gain spiritual experiences in teaching the gospel and seeing how the Lord works in people that they probably wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And, you know, it may not have instantly changed Corianton into this just spiritual juggernaut, but I think that it led, uh, it gave a, a good opportunity for him to, to have those experiences. And I, I think now that we're we're giving the youth of our church a lot more responsibility and a lot more opportunities this is a good example of a time take them make them do stuff you know make them teach the gospel make them share their testimony don't leave them out just because they're young 
uh, incorporate them and involve them as much as possible because that could be the difference for them. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the mission, the mission program, sending youth. When, when I went, you had to be, what, 19? Now you can do 18, so it's not that big a difference. <laughs> but, uh, well, but I, a year. I would say I knew very little about the world, you know? And, and I was, I had preconceived notions. I thought, uh, I thought missionaries were perfect. I thought you would not have challenges. Like you're doing the right thing. Hello, you know, it should work out, but it doesn't always work out. But in that you, it's funny how when you are out there, you realize you don't have mom and dad in the corner. You have your companion and you're lucky if you get along, you know, uh, it depends on the day and depends if they're eating with their mouth open or not. Right. Um, <laughs> But then you realize, I have to rely on the Lord. I cannot do this without Him. And you begin to pray in a way that you've never prayed before. You begin to read your scriptures in a way you didn't read them before. You know, you begin to look at people in ways you you didn't look at them before. You don't start seeing uh, cultures and sins and, and things like that. You see every single one. That person could be a really good member. You you would see all sorts of bad habits or in, in things and you would think, yeah, but if they could just get over that, they would be they would enjoy the gospel. It would help them so much. They would be so happy. And then you come home and someone cuts you off and you're like, That's why we should not have those people in my state or whatever, you know? Like we go from seeing optimism and seeing everybody as as a like what the gospel could do for them and how happy they could be to that person offended me. And I just, I'm not going to church ever again. It's one thing I want to share is um, under prayer in the guide to the scriptures. This is something someone showed me once. and, And I really liked when it talks about the definition of prayer, it begins with it's um, a reverent communication with God during which a person gives thanks and asks for blessings. Prayers are addressed to our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Prayers can be either spoken out loud or silent. A person's thoughts may also be a prayer if they are directed to God. A song of the righteous may be a prayer to God as well. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure for ourselves and others blessings that God is already willing to grant but we must ask for them for we must ask for in order to obtain and I I I just really like that part where prayer is not always is not to change the will of God but to secure for ourselves and others blessings that God is already willing to grant I think that's some that's a trap I fall into a lot when I pray I kind of want Hey, will you change this scenario for me? Will you bail me out one more time? Will you fix where I think it's important to align ourselves with the will of God um, through prayer? And and it it kind of reminds me of Enos when he says, you know, I wrestled with the Lord. 
I, I don't think Enos was an unrighteous person. He, he, I think he was a right, but I think what he was saying is I went and I prayed and I was just working some things out. And by the end of that, I felt this and I got an answer to my prayers and my heart changed and my thoughts were different. In the Sunday School Manual of Come Follow Me, there's a quote from Elder Holland. Um, he says, are we really nurturing our youth and our new members in a way that will sustain them when the stresses of life appear? Or are we just giving them, or are we giving them a kind of theological Twinkie, spiritually empty calories? During a severe winter several years ago, President Boyd K. Packer noted that a goodly number of deer had died from starvation while their stomachs were full of hay. In an honest effort to assist, agencies had supplied the superficial when the substantial was what had been needed. Regrettably, they had fed the deer, but they had not nourished them. Satan is certainly not subtle in his teachings. Why should we be? Whether we're instructing our children at home or standing before an audience in church, let us never take our, make our faith difficult to detect. Give scripturally, scripturally based sermons teach the revealed doctrine. I think that's really awesome. Let us never make our faith difficult to detect. Um, I think right now in our world, it's really popular to be more like, well, I'm just, I, this is what I think and then what I feel and whatever. And that's just me. That's just me, you know. But if if people were to know that where we stand all the time, not that we have to go around, you know, constantly pushing it on people but if it's just really clear where we what we're about and i think that knowing where you stand and then having other people also being able to recognize uh this is what he's about or she's about i think that's really important you know never make it difficult to detect going back to alma 30 what you mentioned dana just sparked this thought for me was um when uh, Alma is speaking in Korihor in verse 39, and Alma said unto him, Will ye deny again that there is a God and deny the Christ? For behold, I say unto you, I know that there is a God and also that there is a Christ. And now what evidence have ye that there is no God or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you that ye have none, save it be your word only. And what is Korihor's word? Well, if we go back to 17 or 18, 17, his philosophy, his word, his way of thinking is, therefore every man prospereth according to his genius, and that every man conquereth according to his strength. And that in, under that way of thinking, he's saying, why would we need a God? Why would there be someone? Why do we have, you know? And Alma saying, you cannot tell me that there isn't one. And you have no proof, save your own philosophy that there isn't one. You know, And I think that's, that's the same thing happening today. I mean, I hear it all the time. I hear it a lot. Like most comedians, they will straight out attack Christians or, or people that believe in religions. Uh, people that are consider themselves academics or scientists. A lot. It's become even more popular to say uh, we we don't believe in God. We don't believe He exists. You know, and it's really ironic because 
you know, then you want to try to make artificial intelligence yourself, you know, and, and you know, like, like it's, it's really, it's really interesting. It's very short sighted to not, uh, because you can't see it, comprehend it, or have it explained to you. And that, that's what gets me about this, um, this antichrist. We've had some before as well. What evidence would you need to know that God lives and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? What would be enough evidence? A vision, a dream? Like, would it be enough? And we find examples in the scriptures that there are people that have to that extent. And we think that that's like the ultimate evidence. It's, it, no. You know, you have Lemon and Lemuel, so angels, you know. You have um, Judas spent years with Christ and was able to betray him for some money. What would be enough? And the only way is to cultivate, you know, we're about to get into that. Alma's about to go into how do you, how do you find out if these things are true for yourself? You know, and now I'm a 32 and so on. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just think for me, I've in my life, I've felt times where my testimony wasn't as strong or my commitment wasn't as strong. And uh, during those times, I start to have doubts and think about things and say, oh, well, what, how come this could be true and stuff? But then, you know, Am I doing the things that invite the spirit to testify to me that these things are true? If I'm not doing those things, then then of course you're gonna doubt. You know? Yeah. I think um and this is just me thinking about this just now. Um so so um, in the original Book of Mormon, when it was originally published, the chapter breaks were different from where they are now. Like we've changed it significantly since it was originally published. And it um, from the manuscript, it looks like the chapter breaks were original to like the Book of Mormon as Mer Mormon and Moroni put it together. And so originally this chapter was basically chapters 30 through 35. That was all one chapter. So... Um, all the stuff with Korahor, and then the Zoramites, and then Nephi, or Nephi, he's not anywhere near this <laughs> chapter. Um, Alma's discourse on faith, um, and then Amulek's discourse on to the poor um, after Alma's, after Alma's um, talk. And so I think, like, this whole, I, I've been trying to think, like, well, why did Mormon include, why did he specifically include Korhor's story? Because we've heard multiple other, like, Antichrist, Antichrist stories. So why are we specifically including this one? What's different about this one that we need to know? Why is it at the beginning of this story, um, of this chapter, that's mostly about faith and about having faith in prayer and about having, like, what it means to have faith? And that kind of thing. And I think that um, maybe it's because, like, of Korahor's version of, of faith, which is that he doesn't really appear to have faith in anything. He doesn't have faith that there is no God or that there is a God. He's not arguing for something. He's just arguing against 
anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> like he's, and, and so I think maybe it's start, it's the beginning of a, a discussion about like, well, what does it mean to have faith in God and to have faith that he exists and that he's there and not just that like faith that, well, he might exist, faith that, I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Why, why is this in here? <laughs> I, think, I think you're onto something. I think you have to look at all of these, like these three events together, mm-hmm. you know, um, because I, I actually, when I was listening to these chapters, I kept going. I went all the way to like 33 mm-hmm. and I thought this looks really good. And then I looked at the manual and it's like, oh, it's only these two. <laughs> um, yeah. Because Alma is going to go in there. And like in even in chapter thirty two and later in um, verse twenty six, I mean he talks. I mean it's it's so good. It's so good. But he's saying um, concerning faith that it's not a perfect knowledge. Even so, it is with my words. And I, that really stuck out to me when he's talking to them and he's saying, even what I'm about to tell you doesn't appear to make sense. But let me help you. So it can make sense. So he's such a good teacher that he knows how he comes across. I'm about to share something. This is why we believe these things. This is why we have a gospel. This is why you have Christ, plan salvation, all these things. And I understand this doesn't sound, but just have faith on what I'm about to say that this is going to get better. You're going to understand what I'm getting to. You know, it's kind of like that. And it's, it's very much, I mean, like that with all of us. I mean, we have faith on something and then we feel how it grows and, and how it improves our lives and enhances our nature. And then we know that that part is true. And it's like, we went from, from having a painting of a wall laying down the first brick, you know, and then you go get the next one and you, and then you, before long, you have a huge brick wall of, of, of firm foundation that, that you wouldn't have had before, but it takes faith to to begin to plan it out to start experimenting. Well, it's only appropriate that chapter thirty two follows these examples because I think what Alma is seeing is this is a guy with zero faith, and so he's asking for a sign, which is not how this works. Sometimes you're going to get experiences that reinforce your your faith, and you might see those as a sign. I prayed for this and it came true, you know, and it's like, okay, well, that reinforces my belief in prayer. It reinforces that God is listening. Okay, that might be considered a sign, right? Or we have a drought and we pray for rain and then it rains. That's a sign that God heard us. Okay, maybe, you know, maybe it's also just that uh, weather works and it rained, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't discount that either. But I think what he's saying is this guy, he wants a specific sign. He wants proof. Okay, that's not how faith works. And then these people, they have a church, and they go to it, and they pray to God, but it's not faithful prayer. It's just regurgitation, right? It's just nonsense. Mm -hmm. And then it says specifically like the rest of the week. They don't think about God at all. They come to their to their church 
on Sunday, they say their one prayer and they go home. Which it's like ritual, right? Yeah. It's ritual. There's no there's no faith in that. And so he's seeing these really clear examples of these people, even after they've they've taught the gospel and many people have been converted, there's these people that are falling into these faithless acts. And so then he follows that up in chapter 32. Here's a sermon about what faith is and how you grow it. You know, I think that's so yeah. great that, that he's like, okay, as the, the spiritual leader of this people, I got to take a step back and say, all right, there's too many examples happening and people not getting this concept. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and explain it in, in very simple terms that everyone can understand. This is what faith is and this is why it matters. And so these these two examples um, are very applicable to our day. I think that a lot of people are willing. They're they're desperate for belief. They're desperate to believe in something bigger than themselves. But they're looking for a huge sign. They're looking for an angel. They're looking for a vision. They're looking for some sort of sign to prove it to them. And he's telling us, you know, that's not really how the gospel works. It's through... It's line upon line, precept upon precept, little by little you go learning and test me now herewith, right? Elio, what you said really struck home about we have to kind of separate ourselves from the story and wonder why would Mormon compile this in this way? Or why would he include this like this out of everything he could have written? And he tells us he had so much like uh, like one 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 hundredth or something like that, and and then he saw our day and knew that we we would have this this um, crisis of faith continuously, either by people attacking our faith like Korihor, or us as a community of friends deviating from the true order of things like the Soromites did. They just, I, I, I think it, it couldn't have happened overnight. It must have been, hey, we're going to do this, hey, we're going to do that, and, and, and then slowly. And because later on when, you, when they talk with the, with the more poor people that were, what? I don't know, I just, I just had in my head, like someone's like, you know, sister so-and-so, hasn't been able to pray in front of the congregation. She wants her turn. Could we just give her a turn? Okay, well, now brother so-and-so is like, hey, if she gets a turn, don't I get a turn? <laughs> okay, what if we just gave everybody their own turn to come up and pray in sacrament meeting? And we've only got so much time, so this is well, what you're going to yeah, say, and then you're done. The <laughs> moving, because yeah. we <laughs> got to keep the line moving. <laughs> We don't want to leave anybody out because then they get offended and we want everyone to come to synagogue. So here's, but, here's what we're going to see. We, we view the st story kind of through the eyes of these leaders, Alma, Ammon, you know, Nephi, what they had to contend with, with reigning righteously, with hurting the people, correcting them, what kind of shenanigans they get into. Oh, they want to go over there. They want to do that. Or they want to mingle with this and they don't think it's going to affect them all well it does all of that happens but then maybe it's um it's like unto us our personalities are we willing are we going to entertain this are we gonna you know not shore up our defenses 
and, and that's the part is if if this is if this was a a living person, this book or this story, and it represents us in a way. What can we learn about our tendencies? And how do we correct ourselves? How do we realize, you know what, I'm I'm kind of in, being like lemon and lemon right now. I need to, I need to. And I'm sorrowful, which doesn't mean that I'm wicked. Or I'm having trials, which doesn't mean that I chose the wrong path. That I just always come back to that. All of these individuals, they were righteous and we look up to them and we think they are um, kind of like role models. But they had trials, they had doubts, and they were doing, sometimes they were doing the wrong thing and had to be corrected, and sometimes they were doing the right thing, and it wasn't easy as well, you know? Mm-hmm. And and just, we, I just feel like we have, we have a crisis amongst Latter-day Saints where uh, we compare our success, our, we compare other people's successes and talents to our failures and our struggles. And we think, I don't fit in. I'm not a good member, or I must not have the right faith, or I did something wrong. And when we look at these people's lives, we see the good and the bad, the thick and the thin and the heavy. You know, you, we see it all. And, and um, I think Satan gets away with a lot of real estate in our minds trying to drag us down into um, second guessing ourselves and, and um, comparing ourselves and feeling like, Oh, you know, Hey, you, you went and prayed about it and you got an answer and you went and did it and it didn't go well. Well, you know what? So did Nephi. Okay. Go talk to him a couple of times. And you think, Oh, Nephi was so brave. Well, Nephi, uh, yeah, he turned around three times. And the second time his brothers beat him with a stick in a cave. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, it wasn't, and he was doing the right thing. And then on the way back, just when they had conquered and you would have thought they know better, they tied him up, you know? Mm-hmm. And then a couple of chapters later, they tie him up again on a boat after he did all the hard work, you know? Like, we just, like, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I am, but... I think we do. I think we do that, and I think we do the opposite too, where we like we compare our best traits to the worst traits of the bad the bad guys in the Book of Mormon. Like we go, oh, those crazy Zoramites up on their Ramiumptum saying the same prayer over and over, and not thinking about God the rest of the week. And like, look at us. We know everything. We're we have the whole gospel, and we're perfect. And like, but like we do this on like we do the same thing, right? We're we don't necessarily say exactly these words, but. How often do we say like, oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, that I'm a member of the church and I know the whole truth. Yeah. And and like and I'm not like these other people who don't have the gospel yet. Or like how often, at least before, like, come follow me, did we like go to church for three hours and then come home and then not do anything the rest of the week? Like I I don't love the come follow me manuals. But I love the program and the thought, and especially now, like that we're mostly doing church from home. That like, this is on like this is a time to study throughout the week. This is on us. This is a very personal thing. It's not a public display of like quote unquote faith once a week and then go back to your regular life. 
And I think it's really important to look at the, the the bad guys and the villains of the Book of Mormon and not just compare ourselves to the good guys and how can I be like them, but say, like, how am I currently like the bad guys and how can I, what lessons can I learn from their mistakes and how can I be, be better in the future? So. Exactly. And also, you know, let's <laughs> say that we do eventually go back to church like normal again someday. Um, having been out for three to six months by the end of this, uh, we're going to be affected by that. That, mm-hmm. that will We will have symptoms of um, maybe not have studied that well or not have engaged with the gospel as much because, oh, yeah, I guess we got to have sacrament meeting. It's Sunday morning, and, okay, we'll break out the cups. Let's do it really fast. You know, and it, it's mm-hmm. not—I'm not saying everyone's doing it that way. But sometimes it might feel that way, and it will make a difference in the long run. So when we go back, um, how can we how can we kind of help support maybe those that didn't have the ideal circumstances? You know, mm-hmm. either they couldn't get the sacrament every week, or they kind of started out strong and then kind of didn't study as much later on and are a little bit behind in the in the studying of the Book of Mormon, when we do go back, I think, how can we bolster each other up? A lot of these things that happen with the Zoramites and even with Korahor, this is laziness. It's complacency. It's allowing things to kind of decay, right? Not staying on top of it, not, not revitalizing our, our faith, but just kind of allowing things to, to fall a little bit until we end up with something completely different than what we started with. Mm-hmm. How do we avoid that during all of this? Um, I think studying the scriptures is important. I think attending meetings when we can is important. We're having virtual meetings with different auxiliaries and stuff, different organizations. Doing that whenever possible so that you don't find yourself going back with such a deficit. You know, you're able to, to stay strong. I think also, just as a side note, it's very interesting to me that, like, the Zoramites could have gotten this far and nobody noticed (laughs) until now. (laughs) And I'm I'm just imagining, I don't know if it says it anywhere in the book exactly, but I'm imagining Alma as, like, the chief judge going, like, what have I done? Like, I was in charge of these people. I was supposed to be teaching them and helping them and protecting them. And clearly I haven't been doing my job right because, like, this is what's happened. And... I don't know. I wonder what kind of lessons we can take from that of like, I was responsible for this person. I was supposed to be helping them. And apparently I wasn't doing it right. I wasn't doing my job. There's a part in there where, where it said it might, I'm not sure which chapter, but I think it's in 31 where they say they knew that the word had more power than the sword. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's later on. Oh, it's but, in 31. It's in the beginning. But um, yeah, it, it's kind of like that. You know, they just had this wonderful experience with the Lamanites and the anti-Nephites. And it was just teaching them the gospel changed so much behavior than, than, than any war could have, right? And it's interesting that that happens, that, that Mormon places that, well, I don't know that he he created the timeline, but 
it's placed there and we're about to get into the war chapters where there is no recourse but to fight you know and and there's a good contrast sometimes one of the worst things we can do is fight when we shouldn't be fighting and not do anything when we should be fighting you know like uh you know when you defend when you should attack and attack when you should defend you know and and i think that there's a lot of that where i don't know i just i just think alma is so although he he has his prayers and he's sorrowful he's so much more optimistic than i would ever be <laughs> be like <clears throat> annex that part we took these lamanites lamanites you come take the soramites how about that? you take them you know well but he doesn't give up you know yeah and i mean even though they do their best and they do convert some people among the Zoramites, like, and they specifically say at the beginning of 31, like, they're worried that the Zoramites are going to join the Lamanites and start a war. So we're going to go preach to them and hopefully they won't. In chapter 35, verses 10 and 11, the Zoramites get angry and they start a war and it happens <laughs> anyway, even though, you know, they, they tried. And, like, maybe it's, like, you know, it's still probably worth it to try and go the peaceful conversion route and convert as many people as you can before immediately jumping into the, the, well, I guess we're going to war. <laughs> right. So I just can't imagine that moment when they walk into the synagogue and they see this thing up there and they're like, oh, that thing. <laughs> and then the meeting starts and then the first person gets up and Alma's like, oh no. Uh -oh. oh, what? You got, you got so Amulek. The next person gets up and says the exact same thing. And mm -hmm. he's like, oh. Mm -hmm. And that's when I think he starts thinking his prayer, you know. How long do we have to deal with this? <laughs> you <know>? I just, <laughs> I thought we were past this stuff. Oh, you got to be kidding me, you know. I would have, it's like, <laughs> I'm sitting there. It's like, what's that thing? Amulek, what's that thing? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it's like and then like one of the younger guys is like oh, I, I think I've seen that in one of those Lamanite camps they hang a pig on it we're gonna eat good tonight guys we're gonna eat good tonight <laughs> and then the first person gets up there and, what <laughs> well maybe it's just this first guy maybe he's just like a weirdo and then yeah, the next one you yeah. know every ward's got one every ward's <laughs> got a guy who gets up there and says something weird mm -hmm. okay fine then the next one gets up, says the same thing. It's like, okay. Third one. Two. Oh, no. We knew this place was bad, right? Maybe there's two of those. <laughs> By the end of the meeting, they're like, okay, we got a lot of work to do. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion. And that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel 
at all times and in all places that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.